This is writer and game designer Robin D. Laws. And this is game designer and writer Kenneth Height. And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Bandwidth brought to you by Pelgrain Press. Stuff we're here to talk about in this episode include... Chain of Fight Scenarios. Eric Prister. Six Ages. Lights Going Out. And the Delft Arsenal Explosion. Welcome, dear listeners, to the realm of God's Forge, where battles between spellcasters unfold in a fast pace. Spellcasting battles, huh? So it's like a magical food fight, but with lightning bolts instead of mashed potatoes? Well, uh, not exactly. God's Forge is all about lightning-quick spellcraft. Roll your dice, tweak the results, and avail your best card. Wait, tweaking dice? Is that even legal? I mean, I've been in trouble for less. Uh, yes, it's all above board. And here's the twist. Simultaneous play. Picture this. Everyone's rolling dice, crafting spells, and launching attack in one synchronized frenzy. Simultaneous play, you say? Like a mystical mosh pit where everyone's tossing spells like confetti or a magical flash mob, but instead of jazz hands, we're flinging fireballs. Exactly. And let's not forget the stunning art of God's Forge. It captures a world of dark, epic struggle. Yes, it's always a struggle deciding whether to wear the cloak of dramatic flair or the robe of very short destiny. And to top it all off, the second edition of God's Forge is here, along with two new expansions, Return of the Dragon Gods and Twilight of the Great Houses. Hold your magical horses. Two expansions. Because clearly one apocalyptic event just isn't enough these days. Two expansions indeed. So gear up, fellow spellcasters, and journey into the epic saga that is God's Forge. God's Forge, second edition, is in stock and ready to order now. Learn more at atlasgames.com. God's Forge! Or follow the link in the show notes. So just a quick preamble before we uh, get to the segments, which is to say that there's an extra special groovy bonus surprise at the end of this episode after our outro credits, which you will figure out like true detectives partway through what that might possibly be. But for the moment, I'm just hinting that we have this extra special bonus feature. The rattle of dice, the thump of miniatures, the crunch of Doritos, and the benevolent gaze of Peter Frampton coming alive welcome us once more into the gaming hut. And perhaps instead of the thump of miniatures, we have the click of miniatures. Because canny GMs and players went and bought old hero clicks to use as their miniatures because we're setting up a chain of fights here in the gaming hut. And what could be more chainy and more fighty than supers, the chainest of fightest genre? But as we're going to get to... In this next adventure crucible element or uh, style, whatever you're calling it. Structure. Structure. It's a, it's a structure. So, yeah, we're talking about the uh, adventure crucible chapbook that I did for the Kraken, which you can get uh, for a low, low price at DriveThruRPG in PDF. And one of those uh, structures is the chain of fights, of which the paradigmatic example is the supers 
campaign, the supers scenario, in which you discover that super villains are robbing the geology store. You go, you fight them. Some of them get away. You think, what could they have been doing? Oh, they were obviously working toward a master plan. Figure out where their next master plan is. You go there, you fight them again. And that fight leads you by one way or another into the big boss fight where their robot they were building with all those rock samples comes alive and starts smashing stuff up. And you have to have the biggest fight of all to end the scenario. And everyone is super happy because that is literally the name of the game. Right. And and anything that is action forward, that is a, about a whole bunch of fights in one evening, basically, that isn't in a dungeon is going to be a, a chain of fights, essentially. So, of course, Feng Shui is the one where I essentially codified this as a structure that, you know, tells you to do that. But you could also do it with anything that can be an action movie, can be structured in at the role-playing table with a, a chain of fights a structure. So that could be, you know, space marines going in to, you know, confront the aliens, or you could do a Western chain of fights. You yeah. could do it in all sorts of different genres, uh, like any structure can have whatever flavor it is bolted onto it. But you're absolutely right, Ken, to say that the uh, probably the most number of chain of fights scenarios being run in any year are run in the supers format. So I think we've sort of covered the structure that you get into a fight, the fight gives you knowledge or resources for the next fight. Some number of fights later, you've had enough knowledge or resources to have a boss fight. And that's the last, uh, the climax of the scenario. The point being that the fights themselves move you through the story as opposed to necessarily anything else. Because why would you do anything else? For goodness sake, you're punch man. You exist to punch the, uh, premise obviously is let's have a bunch of cool fights. And if you didn't want that premise, why are you in this campaign is my question. Right. And I guess there is some in genre reason for some players to like in superheroes, the bickering superheroes is also part of the genre. So mm -hmm. you might have a little, why are we going and having this fight now? And I think you want to keep that to a minimum because I think the, uh, the action movie, you know, I think you want to simulate the action movie superheroes more than the comic book superheroes, because in comic books, it's quite often there's a fight. Then there's a whole bunch of soap opera. Then there's another fight. And I think you are better served to look at the momentum of a superhero movie that has momentum because yeah. yes. some of them are structured more like stop, start, stop, start comic book movies. But the idea is to have a through line that keeps you, you know, there's never too much interstitial material between the fights. And so uh, sometimes that might mean some light investigation. Sometimes it's just uh, finding, going to the next location so you can have a travel scene. And I think that's part of making it fun and exciting is to find different ways to link up the fights, but always make sure that you don't get bogged down in stuff. And if you have a player who's very risk averse and, you know, well, why don't we just talk it out with them? It's like, this is not what this game is. Mm -hmm. So yes. you either want to adjust their expectations either to have them you know, play along or, you know, jump out until the next thing that is more their speed comes along. In a chain of fights, the emotional stakes, as in any action movie, should be pretty obvious and apparent. There are adversaries. They deserve to be defeated. They must be defeated for some reason. And that's where you come in. That's where the scenario plugs in a reason why they must be defeated, why you want to go after them. Could be simple revenge for the first fight that they trigger at the beginning, mm -hmm. or as is often the case, there's a, a big reason at the end why you want to win the boss fight, because that giant robot is going to stomp across the city if you don't do something about it. And so you can either look at what is the personal reason why the 
main characters want to get in this series of fights to get to the end or what the bad thing that will happen to innocent bystanders and people around them will, will cause. So there's some overarching reason why you're going to go through the fights. And also that reason implies at the end, you know that you've done, you know, when you bust up the giant robot, either because you're mad at the robot or because you're worried about what the robot will do, you know, that's the end of the story. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That that's the, the sort of the, the satisfying climax I think is, is key to a normal chain of fights scenario. Although you mentioned a Western chain of fights, obviously the Ilyegiac climax, the one where you realize that you are no longer fit in the town and you have to ride on. It's emotionally satisfying in a way, but it's not satisfying. One assumes for the characters to have to do that. Right. And so other emotional stakes specifically could be, you know, there's someone you have to rescue that can be, you know, a personal reason that person is a loved one who's in the hands of the bad guys. Uh, that's why kidnappings are also a staple element in uh, action movies, hostages. And in Supers comics. <laughs> and, in, and in Supers comics. So there's someone you have to go and get. Or, uh, you know, if you're hard-bitten, you know, professionals who just do this for a living, you're hired to find someone. Another common thread, particularly in martial arts movies, is that you're badly beaten down and humiliated, and then you have to gather the wherewithal to go and defeat the person at the end, which includes possibly finding things and often a training sequence, which can be a fun sort of way to have your experience and power up uh, happening on stage that is very much in genre. Right. That structurally in, in these kinds of stories or movies, and this was very, very common in early Justice League, they'd all be beaten to heck by the bad guy. And then they'd have to figure out how to beat the bad guy, you know, with the little bits of knowledge that they gathered. But you can just mechanically do that by taking the experience points or level up or whatever reward the player characters get at the end of the scenario and just putting it two thirds of the way through the scenario saying this is representing you getting good enough to beat the bad guys. And then you don't get your XP at the end, but you got your XP in the middle when the story demands it to happen. One of the standard elements that I look at for each structure is how do you cut to the fun? Mm -hmm. How do you have that happen right away? And the answer is simple. The fight starts the story. Yeah. The heroes are minding their own business or, you know, if you're uh, feeling lazy, they get the Justice League signal goes off at Justice League headquarters. Uh, but more often, you know, one of them is on the scene and the others come so that you have a fight right away that starts everything, establishes the adversaries, creates the question of what happened and where do I have to go next to resolve the open-ended question that this introduces. Or, uh, you know, you've spotted a Hydra cell and you attack Hydra the, the cell of Hydra, and then that leads you into whatever their big plan was. And this is sort of a Knights Black Agents chain of fights. You figured out that vampires are involved in something, you attack that something, and of course, then that leads you into a series of confrontations, more or less interspersed with investigation, until you get to whatever the local boss is and you fight them, with the whole campaign, in a way, being a chain of fights as well. Right. And I think that's a, a really fun change of pace, because normally... You know, a thing happens to the heroes at the beginning and it's great to, you know, start in media res. You're about to, you know, assault this installation and, oh, but wait, you find out that, you know, it's just, it's not ordinary agents, but uh, they have weird strength and, and one of them drinks blood in the middle of the fight. Oh no, what's going they on here? Climb the walls, that kind of thing. Another standard thing I look at in Adventure Crucible for all the different structures is what are the key obstacles? Well, guess what? The key obstacle in a chain of fights is a fight. A big fight. Yeah. yeah. We talked about that a bit in the context of uh, the dungeon. So a fight also appears in, in F20. It's also the staple there. But here, I think you very often want to do something a little different with it because I think in the chain of fights setup, 
you are looking for a more theatrical, faster moving, more theater of the mind fight than people are when they clunk down their D&D minis. And you're not just moving through the a particular area from fight to fight. You're moving from one location to another. And the secret of a great fight in this format is location, location, location. Just as in uh, an action movie, there are a variety of different environments in which the fighting takes place and the environment interacts with the fight. Whether if it's on a river bank near a verdant glen, well, guess what? People are going to get thrown into the river or aquatic creatures are going to come out of the river. If there's a stand of trees, someone's going to be shooting from the tree or run up a tree. And so think of a bunch of things in each location, first of all, that distinguish the locations from each other to create variety, and also things that can happen that the bad guys can do to interact with the environment. And hopefully that will give the players the idea, oh, wait, I should describe yeah. uh, bits and pieces of the environment. Of course, that's We're not the thing that, here to have fuel trucks thrown at us at this airport. We yes. also throw fuel trucks. Exactly. Or what's another kind of thing that I could throw back at them? Oh, yeah. well, uh, it's not a fuel truck. It's a dump truck and it's full of concrete or whatever it is. And if you have a game system that doesn't reward people for adding that sort of detail to the narration of a fight, adjust it a bit so yeah, that it does. do it. Add it. Yeah, the whole core of these of these scenarios is the fights. And so whatever you can do to make the fights themselves compelling, interesting, and, you know, every table is different. Some groups love a, you know, hour and a half long champions knockdown drag out. Other groups want a sort of an impressionistic DC heroes or Marvel heroes blur. And it's down to your individual table what they want. But the thing that they want in common is for that fight to be as cool as the fights they are already seeing in their head. And that is really the beautiful core of this. And, you know, figuring out how to justify this fundamentally, this dance sequence is your job going into it. You know, you know, you have to fight them. Ideally, tactical choices make some sense. And the bad guys are, you, know, you can tell they're bad. They're, they're dressed as supervillains, not superheroes. You, you should be making the fight itself the core as opposed to a lot of the intellectual structure around the fight, as in maybe other scenario types, right? Right. And so the interstitial material between the fights is about how do you get to the next fight? And so maybe you want to have little bits of soap opera and subplot and B story, but really, I think mostly it's all about, you know, moving from the fight on the riverbank to the fight at the truck depot to the fight at the volcano installation. And so there will be some, possibly some light investigation, or you just have some light interaction. You go to talk to somebody who knows where the next thing is, or conversely, very often in this genre, the bad guys come at the good guys. So you can just, if it is your player's choice to go and banter and have side stories, well, then the bad guys launch another fight at them at an interesting place. And so it's about maintaining momentum, basically. And another thing we look at in Adventure Crucible is where's the escalation point? Where does it suddenly get bigger and more dramatic? Well, we just covered that. That's in the run-up to the final fight. And so that's when really everything converges. And even if you did have B stories or soap opera, then that should all fall away for the big final cool resolution. And the final trick there is to have not only the plot mechanism that is part of the whole reason why the chain of fight started in the first place, why it resolves here, but also make sure it's the biggest, coolest, 
funnest fight with your best ideas for locations and props and other things that they are going to interact with. Yeah, a notion about interstitial scenes. You can always combine soap opera with an interstitial scene, especially if it's a pro forma investigation. We have to analyze this weird metal. Go back to the lab. The characters do their soap opera-ing when you, the GM, feel like that soap opera has got its emotional juice mostly out of it. You say, bing, the metal analyzer goes off and tells you the clue that gets you to the next fight. And that way, you know, you, you sort of have a timer on the soap opera rather than letting it take over the game. It can infuse the game and they have to go back in the fight, maybe with their problems unresolved. Oh, goodness. We right. must be in Marvel after all. And for bonus points, you combine the interstitial forward moving momentum bit with the soap opera so right. that in order to find out that the bad guys were last seen at the truck depot you have to go and talk to uh, the professor who gave you your superpowers who you're on the outs with and uh, your surrogate parent-child relationship uh, remains forever unresolved but they know the thing you got to know so here's another uh, scene that you need to interact with so that's a a simple structure perhaps even simpler than the dungeon and even simpler to set up because you just have to come up with, you know, the three fights, kind of why they connect. And if you're a scenario writer, you can come up with provisional reasons to move through the plot, uh, perhaps alternate ones. And if you're running something uh, yourself on the fly, uh, you can just uh, sort of have some basic notes jotted down and uh, make it up as you go. Because all of your energy should be in making the fights as cool and as individual as you possibly can. Both of those things at once, ideally. Right. And it lets the players feel that they're driving the action in between the things that you've obviously set up for them to do. Right. So on that note, it's the simplest of the structures. We've just described it. So let's head off and see what's waiting for us on the other side of this exciting commercial. After a serpentine journey, the long-awaited scenario supplement for Cthulhu Confidential has shed its final skin to achieve full print form. Yes, Even Death Can Die is now a book filled with terror for one player and one GM. Featuring three scenarios apiece, starring the core book's iconic investigators. Chris Bivey's scholarly World War II vet Langston Wright takes on corrupt businessmen and Nazi spies in One for the Money. Struggles to expel an extraterrestrial passenger from his body in The Shadow Over Washington. And tangles with a traveling fire and brimstone evangelist in Preacher Man Blues. Ruth Tillman's straight-talking New York investigative journalist Vivian Sinclair tackles murder from a distance in The Howling fog goes deep underground as a strike roils a water tunnel project and deeper things stir further below in Axistoria and finds the creepy and crawly behind a gambling ship benefit gala in boundary waters and my LA hardboiled detective Dex Raymond looks into a wave of rat attacks and a child's disappearance leading to the house up in the hills takes on a case for a legendary movie prop designer when Frankenstein's lab gear goes missing in high voltage kill and finds something terrible under a bed at the Revelstock Hotel in Skin and Teeth. Can you solve these cases with your hide and mind intact? Find out in Even Death Can Die, now available from your superior local game store or at the Pelgrane Press web store.
So hey everybody, by the unfamiliar room tone, you may realize already that this is once again Ken and or Robin talk to somebody else. Uh, you are hearing us in a cavernous uh, room supplied to us uh, by Gen Con this year because they're they're in the bacon saving business. Uh, they are. They? they are. They uh, save bacon on the reg. Yeah. And we are here uh, to talk to a fellow podcaster, Eric Prister of the Nature of My Game podcast. And uh, this is an actual play podcast near and dear to my heart. Explain why. I think it's because we're playing the Yellow King RPG. Correct. Um, <laughs> which we are actually our first season and our fifth season have both been Yellow King RPG games uh, written by you, which is wonderful. So I, I Aside from your splendid taste in, in games that you choose to play, uh, what are the what is the basic concept and parameter of nature of, of my game? Sure. So we call nature of my game a story focused actual play podcast of strangeness, investigation, and fear. But honestly, that's just carte blanche for me to do whatever I want with uh, the different seasons of the podcast. I really like kind of horror focused games. I really like games that are set in the real world or at least a proximity of the real world and so it's kind of a season by season actual play podcast where we play different games with different casts tell different stories that are somewhat interconnected or like loosely meta connected and uh the format of the show is there is uh, banter at the beginning yes and then uh and there's some level of there's a dramatic reading Yes, so so um, mostly me, but but someone writes some short fiction that leads off every episode, and that might give a little background information about something going on in the current story. It might give some background information about one of the players, or it might help connect different seasons and different story arcs. Um, so that's mostly written by me, and then we usually start out with some banter, and then we dive back into the game. So I guess the most of the focus that I want to get into here, after having instructed our listeners to also be your listeners, <laughs> is to talk about uh, how to be a good GM for an actual play podcast because and this is something I've begun to notice as as the world returns and I go back to GMing seminars now there's a whole other line of answers which are how to GM properly with an audience listening yes and of course as everyone knows I deeply resent this because it ruins my old thing I always said about <laughs> role playing being the only art form where the audience is also the creator now there's an audience I'm so sorry we're doing that to you I appreciate your apology and personally yes. yeah um, so what are your watchwords in terms of what to do when you know uh, you've invited people to listen? Right. I So I'm a, maybe not a long-time GM. I, I, didn't, start, I didn't start playing role-playing games until after college. But I, I do listen to a lot of podcasts about role-playing games and about GMing. And so I ha I've heard all of the advice about it. And I think, I think one thing that's different about GMing for an actual play is how aware you are that you're trying to tell a good story. And not just a story that your players want to play, not something that they just find interesting, but that other people will want to find entertaining or emotional or frightening or something like that, right? And so that has to be kind of on your mind. So I think that's one thing. And I think another thing is... I'm still always trying to make sure that my players are having a good time because I think it comes through in the audio. I think if you can tell that the people around the quote-unquote table, the Zoom table, are having fun, then I think you're going to tell a more entertaining story. 
So when you are focused on a story that will come alive for an audience, to what extent is that just your job as the GM? Do you invite your players to collaborate with that? Is this edging a little closer into improv theater where it's like everyone knows there's an audience? We all have to, you know, Steve, you can't goof around like you normally do. Is, is there some part in which the players are, are part of the work in that way? Or is it still, you're just a much harder working GM than you uh, would ordinarily be. I, I think it's a little bit of both, right? I think there's an understanding of what we're doing. Like when we're sitting around the table, there's an understanding of what we're doing. And so I don't think one of my players would ever ignore the premise that I'm setting out for them, right? For, for instance, I don't think they would ever do that. But I do think we both have to have faith in each other that we're going to, whatever we decide to do, we're going to bring it back around to kind of where we're headed. I'm always looking for ways to do that without making it artificial, and I think they know that if they go do a thing, it has to have purpose. Because it's not even just we're doing it for an audience, but we're also doing it for an audience in kind of a set amount of time. Yeah, and that's the other real constraint, I would imagine, on doing this for an audience is you have to, you know, keep it tight. In, in, in a game that I'm running at home, if they're halfway through the you know monster basement and it's eleven o'clock, it's like all right, you know, peace out. We'll we'll finish this up later. You can't really do that necessarily. Is there? Do you do creative editing to take out all the parts where my players are dicking around and not actually getting anything done to pick uh, players at random? <laughs> of course, of course. No, no other players have ever done anything like that. Right. Um, I, I don't. I don't edit that much out. Honestly, any most of the editing out is is someone has to stop for some reason and, and yeah, take care of something. Or or exactly. Or exactly. But I think I think it's, it really comes down to the kind of understanding of what we're doing. But I don't want it to feel like it's just... I don't want it to feel like it's just audio fiction. And so I don't want to remove all of the jokes. You know, if somebody's in the middle of a monologue and somebody breaks in with a joke, I'm happy about that because that means that it feels like at least something close to an authentic at-home table. It just means that sometimes I might have to shuffle some things around to creatively get them somewhere faster that I, than I wanted than maybe I had planned to get them before. This parallel literally just hit me when you said feels like an at-home table because it occurs to me there are sort of two schools of restaurant running. There's the one where it's like, this is a rustic farmhouse in Normandy and we're going to mm -hmm. eat like that. And then there's the Michelin three-star and you are having a, a moment that has been programmed by a genius from heaven uh, every second of the day is going to tick out. Do you see that divergence in actual plays that some are like, we are, we're putting on a show here, people, versus this is just our table and we're all having fun, that's, except more professional and sounds better. That's so interesting. You, you're hitting on like two things that are very involved in my life because I'm actually also in culinary school and and, and <laughs> oh. have a full-time job and right. do this podcast. Food, food hut breaks out. Food <laughs> hut. Food hut. Sound the klaxon. <laughs> but yes, I, I do think that that's I do think that's the case. I think some actual plays are leaning more towards audio fiction. I think some actual plays are leaning more toward I'm going to stick a microphone in the center of the table and we're just going to play like we normally play. I think ours leans more I think it I think it's more intentional, so more like the audio fiction, but I think things like the banter, things like the ability to kind of break in and and interrupt even if it's in the middle of dialogue. And I think also, like, I, I try to not... The sound effects that I put in aren't, like, what's happening in the world. It's just music, and I think that's just kind of trying to set the the tone of 
we're playing a game here. We're not we're telling a story, but we're also playing a game. And it's evident that the rules exist to the games, and you can use your podcast in a way that some other more theatrical ones don't allow for to learn how the various games that you play yes. work. And you hear the players stepping out of character to think their way through their interactions with not only with the situations that they're in, but also with the rules, uh, which from the point of view of game designers is the sweet spot. Because <laughs> right. I, I don't want people to listen to a, a Yellow King podcast and go, well, I couldn't possibly ever run that. I don't even know how it goes. It just seems very difficult because they're all so good. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's, it's great to see you leaving that thought process in. And so how much of that is part of the value that you feel that you're bringing to your listeners. Absolutely, absolutely. I mean, and this goes to how much I like Yellow King and also how much I like the gumshoe system in general. I had never run a single session of any gumshoe game, let alone the Yellow King RPG, before we literally turned the mics on for the first season. And so, like, I, I I think it's such a great and intuitive system, and I also wanted that to be part of the experience for the listeners too because I it's just something that I like. I like learning games by listening to people play them and so I wanted to provide the same thing. I didn't want it to interrupt the story but it's a relevant part of the story and the reason that actual play storytelling is different than narrative fiction storytelling is because the the role, you know the the effects the dice have on the game we don't get to change we don't get to choose how those dice rolls come out um, and so I didn't want to ignore that that was a part of it and I like explaining things too so and we talked earlier about there being banter but it's not just you all talking about your day or any you know as I have actually heard in other podcasts <laughs> uh, but you are analyzing what has happened already and how the what the reactions to that were and what the players are anticipating in this session. So what do you uh, feel that is conveying to people? Yeah, I try to do different things. I try to do, you know, sometimes I'll just come up with a random question um, to get to give people a, a chance to get to know the players more because I also think that helps in people's enjoyment is, is how well you feel like you know the people who are talking. I love the, the crafting of stories. I love the crafting of RPG stories and scenarios. And I always want to like I always want to talk to the players about what's going on behind the scenes before I actually should, and like am spoiling things for them. Mm-hmm. And so I think those banter segments in particular give me a chance to start to have some of those conversations and really get a sense like, are you picking up the hints that I'm giving? Like, where is your head at? But I think it also helps me adapt the story to what they're interested in because if I can ask them what they're thinking as players, if I can ask them what their characters are thinking. And I do that in the middle of the session, too. Like, tell me what your character is thinking right now. Because I think that helps me, again, because of the limited time and the fact that I'm trying to, like, tell an interesting story, it gives me a chance to know, get a little bit of insight into what's going on in their heads so that I can move things in that direction. And then that's just actually really one of the juiciest things about role-playing is Absolutely. being able to do that, and I think that's true even if you're not broadcasting and doing it around the table, having that 100%. moment, what in our games we call it the previously moment, when, you know, I usually do that voice and say it, <laughs> and that tells everyone, all right, we're not going to talk about, you know, Oppenheimer, now we're going to talk about the game, <laughs> right. and uh, then they do the, oh my god, where were we, what was going on, did you shoot that guy, stuff that uh, gets you into, the, into that space, and, it, and as they're doing that, you are doing exactly what you're talking about. You're harvesting. Where do they think this is going? Should I put a bear trap there? Exactly. Exactly. So one of the things about tabletop role-playing is that people want to do it themselves. So what tips would you give to someone else who, say, for example, 
thinking of how great the gumshoe system is, <laughs> or even drama system, as, as being available to people for uh, audio format play, what, what would you tell them about setting up uh, a podcast of their own? Well, setting up a podcast of their own, I think, you know, there was a lot of thought and work that went into setting up a podcast for myself, right? It was something that I wanted to do for a long time and really went... There's a lot of kind of back-end things that I think are important if you want to have a... I don't... I can't call my podcast anywhere near successful at this point, but I... If, but to have, what you know, I, a, a product that I feel really good about putting out into the world, there's a lot of technical things that go into it, so I spend a lot of time researching that. But from the gaming standpoint, just jump in and do it the only way you learn how to play role-playing games or to GM role-playing games is to play and GM role-playing games. I literally started playing my first ever role-playing game because a group of my friends in college were sitting around and said, you know what I've always wanted to do was play Dungeons & Dragons. And all of us looked at each other and said, oh, you've always wanted to do that too? I always wanted to do that too. And Are then we, we nerds? And then we kicked ourselves... What a confession. I know, right? And then we kicked ourselves for waiting until senior year to have that revelation... But I literally went out and bought... Curse us for going to parties <laughs> and meeting Damn. people. No, no. We were playing Settlers of Catan at the time, so it wasn't... Right. It's not so a, we, it was an upgrade. <laughs> no, it, <laughs> um, but, but We're tired I, of owning all this stupid weed. <laughs> Can we have characterization? Yeah, right. But I went out and bought the books, and we just started playing. And I've pretty much been a GM ever since. And I... I just, le- I, I just learned how to do it from doing it. And I think the gumshoe system, absolutely, and Yellow King specifically are really great intro kind of entry points because it's not a it's not a mechanically really challenging system to pick up and it really just is a lot of sitting around and telling the story together so i have a couple of questions that you may not be prepared to answer okay so first of all are you ready to talk about the thing the big thing Yes, yes, I'm ready to talk about the thing. If, if you're interested in talking about the thing, I'm happy to talk about the thing. Go ahead, tell them. Great. So um, Robin and the folks at Pelgrane have uh, generously given us the green light to start recording and producing and publishing episodes of our playthrough of Casilda's Song, which is a, a Yellow King campaign that Robin is in the middle of writing, um, and which I... Is, you just got the last part in I right? did. I'm, I know. I, I, I was in the middle of doing something when I got it, and I, like, rushed home to start reading it. Uh, so that, that, that actually really did happen. So we so we actually, starting in Season 9 of our podcast, and I'm probably going to start dropping the numbers to make things make more sense to people, but starting in Season 9, which is the next season of the Nature of My Game podcast, we're going to be switching full-time to the Casilda, to Casilda song. And we are bringing on some more characters from the three who have been playing in our... Um, our first two seasons of playing through the Yellow King, we're going to have a cast of seven. We're taking on all seven of the um, of the occupational kits in the Yellow King, and we're going to be playing through all of the scenarios and the seeds and the. And have you done the math on how long? This is <laughs> yes, I yes I have. Okay. Yes, I have. <laughs> I'm aware that this is a lofty long term <laughs> long term goal, uh, but we're going to start and we're going to see how it goes. Um, I've already recorded uh, the first scenario, and we're getting set to record the second. And I just love it, and I'm so excited for it. I have a, I have a question. Actually, you talked about trying to build a continuity throughout the podcast. Now, obviously, if you're playing a bunch of different games, that continuity is imposed by you. Yes. <laughs> but in, even in the context of Casilda's song, is this going to tie into your previous Yellow King campaign? Like, meanwhile, on the other side of Paris, these guys are doing something? Or is, is there going to be crossover characters? What's, yes. what's the continuity element? And how do you make that work without seeming 
like the last uh, half of Marvel. Yes. So, so, so the first two seasons that we have played are going to basically be the kickoff for our campaign, right? So those, so those three characters are going to be three of the seven characters involved. Thank goodness. <laughs> yeah. No, I. I don't. I couldn't possibly lose those three players or characters. Connell Brady is going to lose it. <laughs> He's he may not be long for the <laughs> may not be long for the sane portion of the world. Well, uh, let me break in. <laughs> yeah, talk about ahead. the experience of being the designer, <laughs> listening to people play yeah. the scenarios. Is that I've, I've come to like these characters from they they first played Sam Saltiel's adventure and then one of mine, and, and now it's like, wait a minute. This is a danger that I have put into the scenario. I don't want these characters to be killed. Protect them from my scenario, Eric. Well, the player, the player who plays Donald Braith, Mikey Krennic, um, has famously said that he doesn't believe that it's possible for a character to die in the Yellow King. So I'm, I'm setting out to prove him how to prove how wrong he is on that. Well, not well. There's another thing more likely. Yes, than <laughs> yes, that's true. But anyway, so I'm gonna. What I, my goal is to. I'm gonna bring them in. I'm gonna tie some of the things that happened. In those first two seasons, into Casilda's song, and and basically use those as kind of a precursor for what the the game between the two sisters is going to be uh, moving forward. And we also did a, a Patreon exclusive four episode little series that I actually published today for the general public to listen to called Cold as Ice, which is two other art students right around the same time as our first season in February of 1895 experiencing something different based on a blog post you wrote, Robin. And those are those are also going to be two of our characters in Casilda's song. They're played by two uh, people that I've had on other seasons of Nature of My Game who are amazing. And then we will have two uh, brand new characters who will be introduced in the very first season of the Silva song. So the, the other final question that I had that you may not want to answer is, that thing on your arm. Yes. Is that what I think it is? It absolutely is what you think it is. So you know about <laughs> describing things in an audio medium. <laughs> Eric, tell people what's on your arm. Yeah, well, this should be pretty easy to describe because you can basically go look it up online. But th- this is Pelgrane's version of the yellow sign. I have it tattooed on my arm. People <laughs> often ask, how can we become guests on the show? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think that's the way to do it. Ritually scar yourself. <laughs> I, I've, I've been wanting to get a tattoo for a long time. I've had lots of different ideas. But around the one-year anniversary of the release of The Nature of My Game, so in December of 2022, I went and got this tattoo. I'd been thinking about it for a while, and I think for me it is kind of... It is a symbol of, obviously, of horror, which is a genre that I, I love. It is a commemoration of uh, storytelling for me, and I think it's also a commemoration of the very first game that I played on this thing that I've put a lot of hours and uh, a lot of uh, mental and emotional energy into. So that's why I got it, but I, I really love it, and this is one of the only places in the entire world, being here at Gen Con, where someone might actually know what it is when they look at it on my arm. Well, you picked the right audience to start. I, there's yeah. no doubt. There's yeah, no yeah. doubt. So after, so after I uh, turn this recording off, I'll have to get a picture of that to send to uh, a Christian, <laughs> uh, the designer. You can put and, it in the show notes. Exactly. Uh, so thank you so much, Eric, for uh, sitting down with us today. Absolutely. Thanks for having me.
The best of Ask the Geln is now available at Drive-Thru RPG. All issues of Phoenix Magazine since 2013. That's spelled F-E-N-I-X. Can now be grabbed in special English editions. Containing stellar gaming material from our own Ken Height. And such other recurring stalwarts as Graham Davis. And Pete Nash. Also find Dice, the gorgeous photo book celebrating that classic gaming accessory. And Freeway Warrior, the series of post-apocalyptic choose-your-adventures by Joe Dever. And if you speak Swedish, not English... That's Swedish, not English. You can delight in every original issue of Phoenix. And the new Sagebrush and Six Guns role-playing game, Western. How do you say slap leather varmint in Swedish? Uh, oddly, Google Translate refuses to help on that. That's the best of Askfageln on DriveThru. Keep this podcast triumphantly moving between action set pieces by joining such dove-encircled Patreon backers as... David Mascari! Fred Kish! Ian Nystrom, Joshua Randall, and Yuri Hardiman. The covert self-promotion of the rest of the podcast, and indeed of the first segment, uh, returns once more to overt self-promotion as we open up the big cabinet and we look at all of the headgear there. There's trilbies, there's fedoras, there's a boater, there's a Borsalino, and oh, look at that. It's a fur hat with horns in it, Robin. <laughs> Tell us about this of your many hats. Right. There's some very, very elaborate hats in it. I'm sure there's somebody with horned hats in this. So I'm here to tell you that Six Ages Lights Going Out, which is the second in the series of Six Ages desktop slash mobile games, is now out. This is from A Sharp, is the a development house I'm working with, with uh, David Dunham. And people who recall either King of Dragon Pass from Days Gone Pass, or more recently, the first episode of Six Ages, know that it is a crisis management, resource management, narrative game set in Greg Stafford's world of Glorantha. And the bits that I work on particularly are the scenes in which situations are presented to you and you're given a series of choices and you have a number of advisors to give you advice. Sometimes that will be spot-on skill-based advice. Sometimes it will be based on their personalities. Sometimes it will be a, a weird non-sequitur of some kind. But you have to figure out how you are going to guide your clan through the travails that are presented to you. In the first episode, you are members of a horse-riding clan, and uh, you have these sort of weird enemies, the, the Ram clan, the people of Storm instead of the people of the, of the Sun, and uh, you're sort of competing for resources and territory in this uh, valley that you've settled. And at the end of that game, spoiler result, there may be some sort of unity reached mm. between the two cultures. Well, this time around, the unity has, a, has gone on for so long that the cultures have merged. And now you are an Orlanthi culture who have bits and pieces of the old horse tribe still uh, in you. And more importantly, in the interim... The feature character of the first episode became a legendary king, unified tribes, had a series of successors, and now, unfortunately, things are getting bad because the world is ending. The oh, chaos age that. is beginning. And so, this time around, uh, and people who know the Glorantha lore know how bad the great darkness, the advent of chaos was, that the, the world nearly ends. And so, here you're playing a your clan of people as... Everything has fallen apart, including the concept of kingship. You no longer have the royal regalia that you need magically in order for your clan, even though you've got the big fortress, to assert 
your actual royal authority over the other clans. And so one of the opening questions is, do I, do we try to reassemble a tribe? And it's like, well, the answer seems kind of no, because we don't have the, the regalia to do it. So uh, I guess instead we've got to strap in, uh, get ready for the end of the world. And uh, so it's a tougher yet in the end, uh, even more mythic and more a heroic chapter of the saga. Well, one hopes it's heroic because obviously the other answer to what do you do at the end is you, you know, start playing short term last tags, you know, every man for himself, economics or politics, right? Is that, is that always a, a thing that one of your advisors suggests is like, look, if we grab all the grain now, we're definitely going to live through the winter. Yes, that's definitely a big question that you're faced with is how do you give up on trying to unite with the other clans because you can't and the clans start dying around you and bits of the map start dying around you Ooh. and areas become uninhabitable or sometimes uh, vanish. And in certain episodes, even, you know, the ability to speak in language starts to fall apart. And so things get quite dire indeed. However, as a player, you have a new entertainment level, which is the first chapter sort of had a few feature characters who you follow throughout their course of the story. Well, this one has a whole bunch of uh, different characters and they have conflicts with each other. There's the, uh, the first king. And uh, when kingship is going sour, maybe the person who is your hereditary king is not the person you naturally want to lead you. And in fact, you get to decide whether the King Ivor Lantho, who's a bit of a problem, is actually also your chieftain, whether he has real power or only ceremonial power. If he has only ceremonial power, he and his other royalists are going to be lobbying to change that. And there are other kings that can come along and succeed uh, this king if, if that king dies, which he usually does, but it's not necessarily the case that he always will. Well, I take it the solution is not a the bourgeois townsmen impose a revolutionary new structure. There are no towns. There so. are no towns. Well, that'll get in the way of your Marxian death of kingship, I suppose. Yes. So what's, if people know, you know, sort of, they, they know how Glorantha comes out, is that like an advantage? Can you sort of play towards that? If like you were in a history game, you're like, I know the Franks are going to win. I'm just going to lean into the Franks whenever they show up. Or is it just a, uh, records are confused. We're not at the point where that knowledge is going to help. Is Glorantha knowledge, I guess, an advantage for a player, or is it just a cool thing to have for a player? It's definitely an advantage to have, but it also presents you with all of the lore. Mm -hmm. But the other side of that is that it's not guaranteed if you as a player screw up right. that it's going to work out the way it does in the official continuity mm -hmm. where the world ends and is then restarted. You may not even last to the end. Your clan may be wiped out uh, before uh, the end of the world even occurs, or you may go through the end game and fail. So you do not have script immunity because of uh, the way that the official continuity goes, because your job is to make sure the official continuity uh, comes happens, out right. And the converse of that has to be there has to be the prospect that it won't. Now, was there a lot of... Um yeah, because you did a Six Ages game before this one, was callbacks and uh, remember this and stuff like that. Was that a big part of the design? Was it explicitly don't do that because we don't want to burden people with previous lore? Was it fun and cool to get to play in that sandbox for, because I know this is like a multi-year project for you whenever you do one of these Six Ages games. Yeah, this is, each one is basically five to four. Uh, six novels worth of writing. Uh -huh. Yeah. <laughs> so it's a lot of stuff. So the principle was that you can start with chapter two and pick it up and play it. And you're given all the information you need in order to understand that. But the, there are definitely Easter eggs that will make a difference to you if you played part one. In fact, there's even 
uh, cover your ears if you want to be totally unspoilered. There's a <laughs> uh, prospect that one of your known characters in part one can disappear into a divine rift in, in the God's War, because time doesn't really quite work on the divine level at this point yet. And you can go and find that character from 500 years ago from your previous game and bring them back. Ooh. And of course, they've been in the God's Realm for, uh, from your point of view, hundreds of years. So they've got some pretty cool powers uh, stored up after that. Ideally. Yeah. But they may also have sort of, sort of some wild ideas of what ought to be done that don't match with what you thought their wild ideas were going to be, I assume. Yeah, they're part of that original culture. And, yeah. and the people that you think of as, you know, a kind of legendary kings, that's like, oh, yeah, I remember Baron. Yeah, he's... He's pretty good, I guess. I, I feel like He's not a fine. lot of people would like George Washington's tax policy if he came back either. So, yeah, it, it's a big question. Now, speaking of these sorts of policy games, a lot of times you say you've got, you know, uh, one guy says, kill them all. And another advisor says, you should be friends with the uh, invading spider people. I'm sure they have uh, beautiful art. And then the only real answer is the middle guy who gives you whatever the middle answer is that the sort of a force in a card trick. Are you, when you're making these, these branching advices, how much of it is you have to force the card and how much of it is, because I could see it getting, I mean, this would explain why it's five or six novels. If you have legitimate choices each time, but that rapidly turns into just a garden of forking pads nightmare, doesn't it? Well, the way that the scenes work is they mostly avoid threading. Mm -hmm. And even more so this version, we decided to not have scenes that thread into other scenes so that a scene will have consequences and set up and the code will remember them as a set of variables. And then other scenes will come in and they will become relevant or not based on that. Mm -hmm. And so there aren't a lot of paths that you can take that get you too far from the main narrative because of the way that they're constructed in these sort of building block scenes that take on a different shape depending on what you've done. So it's like you're solving an individual puzzle and your points on solving that puzzle build up or don't build right. up. So there literally are spider people that you uh, ask yourself if you're going to unite with the trolls mm -hmm. and you can be on good terms with the trolls. You can be on bad terms with the trolls. There is sort of an answer, which those who know Glorantha lore will know. It's like everybody's got to team up <laughs> against chaos. <laughs> and so you're going to try and, you know, reach a, some sort of positive uh, relationship with them, and that will benefit you in the long run if you do that. But there's definitely the advisor who's who's a xenophobe who doesn't want anything to do with anybody else, and you have the one who's saying, we need unity. And eventually the game does sort of tip its hand. It has an opinion on which of those mm -hmm. two advisors is right. So this sort of, you know, single scene design, it has a big effect on the world, but it doesn't maybe drive the story. This is kind of like orthogonal almost to RPG scenario design because effect on the story is what you're always thinking of in terms of a scenario in sort of a scene in a scenario. Do you think that there's takeaways from designing this game that inform your RPG design? Do you think there's takeaways from playing this kind of game that inform RPG design? How orthogonal is it? I guess is my question. Well, I guess the main thing is that it's very important in this format to make sure that all failure is forward, that it creates an interesting outcome. Mm -hmm. So that in the very first of these games, King of Dragon Pass, there were catastrophic outcomes that you could sort of end the story in sort of a fighting fantasy sort of way of you've done everything wrong and now you're doomed kind of way. And then over the years of developing these, we've moved away from that to something that always keeps you on track to a version of the the main event. So there's definitely, you can lose if, you know, just on the resource side, right? If you run out of cows and 
you know, if your economy of your collapses, your clan will disband or you could be, you know, dispersed and, and driven off by your enemies or, you know, all sorts of terrible things can happen that, that cause you to lose and not reach the end game state, but that it's more and more about following that sort of fail forward principle. And that's definitely something that does cross pollinate with tabletop game design. And in both cases, it's, you know, easy to come up with boring consequences that kill the game. And the challenge is to, you know, oh, well, you've been defeated here, but here's an opportunity to eke out just a little bit more of a success and keep going. And so, in fact, you know, just a couple of months before the game shipped, I jumped back in and was asked to write a bunch more scenes that would create more of a sense of continuity over time in having little storylets with the featured characters, which, again, they don't have a bunch of branches, but what you do determines how they come out. And also, we needed some more, uh, in Hamlet's at points terms, upbeats mm. to keep you going yeah. uh, as you That's slowly wild. grind toward the end of the world. And so we added those. And, and the interesting thing about the format is that you can chunk in a bunch of new scenes and it will measurably change the mood of players and their sense of, you know, control and achievement as they play it. Yeah. And uh, it's almost like, you know, the dispersed dopamine you hit you get from playing a role-playing game is, is concentrated when you're playing it on your phone or you're playing it on a, your keyboard because it's just you and that glowing screen that's boss of you. Yeah. Another weird challenge that you don't have in tabletop, though, is that the player can save the game. Mm -hmm. uh, in this case, it automatically saves every year. So that was, for me, some of the most brain-bending design work was if there was a bad consequence that I wanted to make sure stuck with you, I had to structure it so that you couldn't just use the save button to reverse it and get your way out of it. Right. You could argue that having that happen to you and then reversing it, you've had the negative downstroke, but you mm -hmm. don't want to deal with the consequences throughout. And you can do that, but there are certain things that I want to make sure that you would be stuck with if you did them. I mean, to some extent, it's a game about the world ending. The world has to end. You can't just yes. save your way out of that. Right. Yes. There's no way you can save your way out of that. But, but if there's, you know, if one of the giant chaos creatures comes in, you know, stomps your clan lands flat and it's utterly devastating, you you can reverse that, which is fine most of the time. But there were special cases where, you know, we really had to put on our thinking caps to make sure that the events broke over the course of a year or didn't so that the... These are the important catastrophes. Yes. The ones you need for your vitamins. Or, or at least the ones that where you should live with the decision that you made. <laughs> right. Well, that's a design philosophy and a half. And I think when we've gotten to a design philosophy and then added a half, we have worn our hat to the best imaginable effect. So we put the hat back on the rack and we move into a beautiful ad and thence into an even more beautiful segment. In Delta Green, cosmic terror meets modern conspiracy. The secret group Delta Green dedicates itself to protecting humanity from unnatural horrors. They misappropriate the resources of the U.S. government to wage a war they must at all costs keep hidden. Delta Green, the conspiracy, is the source book for the grungy, cynical era that started it all. The 1990s. Generation X becomes Generation... Ugh! 
in Delta Green, the conspiracy. An updated, rearranged version of the original 1997 Delta Green sourcebook with new art and graphic design. Featuring top-secret Eldritch new appendices by Shane Blackbag Ivy. And a forward by Ray, plausibly deniable Winninger. Put on your flannels, grab your duffel bag of hardware, and assemble your fake passports. Enter the Temple of the Dog, exit the Temple of Cthulhu. Never mind all the brain leakage you suffer when seeking the nirvana of Nyarlathos tap. Find the fungi on the Mina airfield. And why Jeremy really spoke in class today. Tell your retailer it's at that unmarked warehouse they always order from. That's Delta Green, the conspiracy. From Arc Dream Publishing. The clacking of time gears and the whirring of chronotons tell us that we're once more standing in proximity to Ken's time machine, which of course is the conveyance that his superiors at Time Incorporated used to send it back into history to bend, fold, spindle, and sometimes, yes, even mutilate it. This time around, beloved Patreon backer Bruce Miller has gotten the ear of Time Incorporated and says, I was astonished to read about the Delft Arsenal explosion, which destroyed most of the town. What was going on that only an explosion could remedy the situation. So, Ken, this is one of those times where you have seen the other timeline and erased it in favor of our timeline with your time machine. But before you get to that, I guess it's time for you to tell us about what happened on October 12th of 1654. All right, I'm going to put a pit in your characterization of that because if you remember, when I explode things, they stay exploded. You know, you, you drop a torpedo on West Virginia, frickin' does its job. Right. Well, I'm I'm not implying that your explosion didn't go off. Right. All right. Well, I think I'm implying you made a giant explosion. Yeah. And that is perhaps what we will learn is not the case. But what we will learn before that is that on October 12th, 1654, 40 tons of gunpowder were stored in an old convent in Delft. The Netherlands now being a Protestant country, they had lots of extra convents, and so they thought... What's the opposite of a convent? An ammunition depot. An ammunition... Well, you know, they are very different. One of them contains explosive material that only awaits a spark to go off, and the other one, of course, stores gunpowder. So, the secret of Holland is what it was called. Obviously, you don't want the the Spanish or or the other enemies. The, the British were the enemies of, of Holland. They hated British as well. You don't want anyone to know where your powder is, so they would sort of hide it in the basement underneath this convent. But the trouble with having a secret gunpowder reserve is you have to sort of inspect it every now and again. And uh, roughly 1015, Cornelis Sotens, the keeper of the magazine, goes inside. Some records say with a visitor. Other records say not with a visitor. You're not going to find out because he lit his lantern to look at the gunpowder. Possibly that should have been on your user manual. like... Not to do. A a mistake. Go during the day when there's sunlight. Well, it's in the basement. There's not a ton of sunlight anyway. But the end result is lantern sparks. Boom. The 40 tons go off. The blast has been estimated at 22 and a half tons of TNT equivalent. It's heard 100 miles away in Texel. The eastern quarter of the city is completely destroyed. Every building in the city center is damaged. The stained glass windows are blown out of both churches, the roof blown off the new church. Fires then, of course, spring up and burn down the wooden center of Delft. The end of the day, there's at least 120 people. It's a question mark. No one ever counts them up. Uh, Thousands are wounded. 
Fortunately, many Delfters are away at trade fairs in Shedom and The Hague at the moment, because it's, you know, it, it, it's trading time, 10 in the morning. And Right. Now, is this, you know, not to blow anything, did you make sure that this happened at a time when everybody was off at trade fairs? Do I inspire trade fairs wherever I go? Perhaps. That's a different question. But again, from a population of 24,000, which is how many people lived in Delft, you're talking about something that probably directly affects everyone in the town, at least knows somebody who was wounded or killed in the explosion, in the Delft thunderclap. Amongst the dead was the child of the painter Egbert Vanderpoel, who became perhaps understandably obsessed and painted 20 pictures showing the devastation always with a corpse in the foreground. The Delft explosion is not special except for being, you know, big and being painted. The Netherlands had Bredevoort and Hoisden. Arsenals go off in 1646 and 1680. Both of those were hit by lightning. Maastricht was another clumsy handler in 1761. Amersfoort in 1787. A powder hulk, a ship designed to carry powder, blows up at the docks. Yeah, well, you, you don't like Powder Hulk when he's angry. No, you don't like Powder Hulk when he's angry, nor does the town of Leiden, apparently, uh, especially in 1807. And if we are making fun of the oldie-timey Dutch with their oldie-timey gunpowder, keep in mind that in 2000, a fireworks factory at Enschede, which is as close as we get, I guess, to a, a big room with gunpowder in it, blew up and uh, killed about as many people as the Delft Thunderclap did, so... We are, uh, thunderclaps are not all in the past, but that is what happened. I guess the fortunate thing is that it happened at the end of the Anglo-Dutch War, so it did not strategically impact the struggle, but it was a, a situation, certainly. And now, Robin, let me pick a nit with you and perhaps beloved Patreon backer Bruce Miller. There are more people than me, I have said this so many times, with time machines, and the reason that Time Incorporated tries to sort of keep a lid on it is because of people like that who do set off Delft explosions, Robin. I did not set off the explosion. Did I mitigate the explosion? Yes. And I will explain. The current iteration of this explosion killed the painter, a student of Rembrandt, Carol Fabritius, who was vaporized because they had built cheap weavers housing right up next to the arsenal. This is a problem for a different day, but he and his uh, studio and virtually all of his paintings went up and only about a dozen of his paintings survive. The most famous being the goldfinch. Uh, if people are Donna Tartt fans, they've read all about it, but it's a beautiful example of Trump Lowell and almost uniquely in students of Rembrandt, Fabritius uses light as a positive element throughout his paintings. It's not like one Rembrandt-y spot in a big sea of, of sepia. There's a lot going on with his light. He was sort of figuring out light. And perhaps his pupil Vermeer was also living in Delft and did not blow up in this version. And I'll tell you, in a previous version of this explosion, there was no fair and Jan Vermeer went up and the time people did it so that they could corner the market in Vermeers and sell the Vermeers that they had as, oh, we found this in the explosion and uh, make big time money uh, on Vermeers. The explosion is now much smaller. It affects many fewer people. Uh, the time guys are now doing the same thing. The bad time guys are doing this with Fabritius. They've got, you know, a big stock of his paintings. They went and they bought them all uh, right before he went up and now they're leaking them out into the time stream 
and perhaps a a second or third pass is going to be necessary to damp the Delft explosion down to just being, you know, blows out the stained glass windows and, you know, gets rid of Cornelius Sotens for being a bad gunpowder keeper. But right. so these, of course, would be the, the chrono speculators. This is the you right. have many time enemies. And I do. These are yes. the ones who are basically just in it for profit mm. to make money. Unlike Time uh, so, Incorporated, which is in it for profit, but not to make money. Well, the, to, to, to profit humankind. Exactly. Yes. And then we bill humankind on a pro rata basis. Right. But the, the chrono speculators, they're just trying to uh, turn a fat, the, the chrono grifters, really. They, they really, you so could who, argue. Who's the major chrono grifter that you meet periodically as a recurring villain? I think that it is, in fact, he certainly says he is, and uh, it's difficult to say whether he was or not. I think it is, in fact, Adam Worth, the legendary art thief, the guy who, you know, was tagged when he was arrested in, I think it's 1914, as uh, the model of Moriarty. He's a problem child. Right. And his name is an eponym. So. And his name is an eponym, which is always a sign that you're either in the DC universe or bad stuff is happening. Uh, speaking of people in Delft who do not die in this iteration, I saved Anthony Van Leeuwenhoek, the uh, inventor and perfecter of the microscope and the first real microbiologist. So, if you've ever looked through a microscope or been cured of a biological ailment, you're welcome. Thanks. The bill will be in the mail. But uh, Anthony Van Leeuwenhoek uh, went up in the first version of the Delft explosion. So, just doing what I can, Robin. Doing what I can. Also, right. an awful lot of lovely blue china, not shattered in this version. So, of course, every segment of Ken's time machine is implicitly and sometimes retroactively a scenario for the game that this segment inspired, uh, Kevin Culp's Time Watch. And so... A scenario uh, based on this or any of the other somewhat less famous, although equivalently destructive, ammo dump explosions could be a fun scenario where it's either you're, you know the explosion is going to happen and you're trying to outright stop it, or it may be a fixed point and you uh, know you can't stop it, but there's something you got to do. Somebody you've got to save before the explosion. You definitely want to bug out before that happens. And so other than that, is, is there anything that needs to be added to this scenario that writes itself? I mean, one of the things that, that did strike me as I investigated the case of Carol Fabritius is that, you know, you got Fabritius and Vermeer here. You've got an awful lot of the art history of the Western world is hanging on one or another house fire. And I think we've talked about, you know, the luck that had the Beowulf manuscript you know, on the other wing of the library from the one that burned down back in 17-whenever. And the, the the notion that we could have lost Vermeer and kept Fabritius or lost both of them and never known that any Dutch painter ever understood what light was for, that's an interesting twist. And I feel like this is the sort of thing that an existential mystery could be about, that, you know, one of your, maybe, I don't see a, a direct Yellow King connection, although... You know, who can say if there's a there's an extent to which militarism is seen as a as an aspect of the Yellow King future in repair of reputations. You could argue that in some way there's a Yellow King outburst in uh, Holland during the great Dutch Renaissance, where, you know, all of these uh, the Dutch Golden Age, where all these painters and whatnot are, are blossoming. Surely, King in Yellow is also there trying to sneak his doom and despair in against even the most powerful bulwarks Calvinism can erect. Well, I think now that we're dealing with the bulwarks of uh, Calvinism, we've perhaps gone beyond the remit of this podcast. So, it's time to tell you what the previously teased special bonus feature is. Uh, we're going to do the outro. And then after that, you heard Eric uh, Prister already talk about his podcast 
the nature of my game and the fact that he's going to do a massive Casilda song series. Well, he's uh, dropping that already. And on the other side of the credits, uh, you can hear an exciting teaser of the very beginning of the very first adventure. So if you uh, like actual play podcasts, or if you don't like them, but because you haven't heard a really good one yet, listen in after the credits. Stuff having once again been talked about, it's time to thank our sponsors. Atlas Games. Paul Grand Press. Astrogown. Arc Dream. Dork Tower. And Pro Fantasy Software. Music, as always, is by James Semple. Audio editing by Rob Borges. Support our Patreon at patreon.com backslash Robin. Prevent this podcast from blowing up by joining such beloved backers as... Kelly Fisher. Scott Stefanski. Jeremy French. John Kingdon. And Kevin J. Maroney. Wear this show or drink it from a mug with... Ken and Robin merch at tpublic.com slash user slash Ken Robin. Present the gray alien point of view with our latest design. Nope, still not us. On X, he's at Kenneth Height. And on Mastodon, he's Robin D. Laws at Dice.camp. See you next time when, once again, uh, we will talk about stuff. Under the ghastly aegis of Pelgrane Press, the Nature of My Game podcast presents Casilda's Song, Chapter 1, Spill the Wine. So with the invitations given, we are going to fast forward to, in fact, a Sunday afternoon at the Ile de la Jatte. And the four of you find yourselves walking through the park. It can be reached by a bridge not too far from your school and the neighborhood that most of you live in. So it's a pretty easy trip, uh, especially by bicycle. So I imagine the four of you and whoever else is with you uh, took some bikes out to the park. For the most part, the park is a place to come on a weekend, enjoy the cool breeze outside of the crowded city, and eat buttered baguettes. But for budding artists, particularly painters, so particularly for Genevieve and for Francis, it's a place to take one of the greatest risks that can be taken, to bring out your sketchboards and work in view of all. As you look around for a place for the four of you to lay down a blanket and relax, Francis and Genevieve, you both notice that painting students are not the only ones who have made their way to the park today. Two more famous painters catch your eye. A broad-shouldered, middle-aged man with a close-shaven pate and great bristling beard, and a tall, pear-shaped, English-looking fellow about the same age. In fact, as you walk nearby with your paint boxes and sketchboards, the two men smile at you. The man with the impressive beard even says, A beautiful day, no? And you have found the perfect scene to capture, as we have. And so, uh, Francis and Genevieve, with your painting investigative ability... The first man, the one with the beard and the one who spoke to you in a French accent, is leading impressionist Claude Monet. What? <laughs> what? Oh my okay. god. And Woo. his his willingness to engage with the young artist is somewhat surprising. Um, he's known to have become increasingly solitary recently, but I don't know, maybe it's the maybe it's the nice day, maybe, maybe something else nice happened in his life that has caused him to be in a good mood today. 
Um, We're very and- charming. Please do not discount. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Yes, maybe maybe it's maybe it's just the appearance of Ms. Vanderbilt uh, exactly. in her, mm-hmm. in her finery. That, yeah. <laughs> um, and so the man that he's painting alongside is Alfred Sisley, um, another impressionist, respected by forward-looking colleagues and collectors, despite his lack of success to date in selling his work in France. <laughs> um, and so he's English, and has come, to, you know, m- much like you as art students, has come to Paris to try to join the Parisian art scene, and has found it mostly. Not that uh, has has not had a lot of success so far. Do either of you or any of you um, engage with uh, mm. with Messieurs Monet and Sisley? <laughs> Sorry, we make a whole pivot to the game to just talking to Claude Monet. <laughs> we, make, <laughs> we make you be him and Sisley like the entire time. <laughs> I have a million questions. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'll tell you up front. I don't know a lot about Claude Monet, so don't ask me specific yeah. questions. <laughs> I went on a, like a high school trip to like his gardens at Giverny. I have like a picture of me on the bridge that he painted. It's very Same. cool. Well, so yeah. Ha- yeah, how can how can you how can you pass up an opportunity to chat with Claude <laughs> Monet? <laughs> oh man, yeah. I mean, I guess I don't know. Um, I'll kind of like I'll glance at the others, dude. Like, because I know Genevieve and I, we probably recognize them. It sounds like. Um, is anybody else like? A, anyone in our group look like they recognize them, and B, are they surrounded by like, oh my god, it's Claude Monet? Ah, like little no, fans. Yeah, there's nobody. Yeah, there are no there are no fans out um, that are kind of surrounding them because I think most people would assume that they want to be left alone. Mm. Fair, but I think Rose. I don't think that Rose or uh, Percy recognizes mm-hmm. them necessarily, and. Monet seemed to open the door for a conversation. He he's you know said that it's a lovely day and said that you've picked a fine spot. I I feel like Percy would recognize them as like men okay. of culture. Maybe not sure, like literally sure, recognizing them, but like. <laughs> so I think he would sort of begin, you know, holding forth again. And he, you know he says something like, "Oh, a perfect afternoon, gentlemen. You know, something to cast in amber and stow away in the cellar for a hundred years." And he just keeps going on <laughs> and oblivious to whatever their reaction is. <laughs> um, I think I think specifically Sisley kind of like smirks, it's just kind of like like allowing you to go on, but like immediately understanding what type of person you are. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> red, I think, just red for filth. Yeah. I think at that point, Genevieve would probably uh, recognize that and not wanting Percy to be insulted, she would point out who these people are so that Percy doesn't make a fool of himself. Sure. And, and also because she wants to be the first to note who these people are and introduce herself. Of course. I'm not sure that would prevent him from making a fool of himself. No. <laughs> no probably. Yeah, but she tries. She tries. <laughs> Sisterly duty. Yeah, I mean, I think for Rose, honestly, like, she's there, right? But she's really only there because, like, Francis has asked her to be there. And, you know, it's not like she's, like, coming to sculpt in the park. She's a little bit of, like, a shadow of the group, I think. Mm. I also think she might have been slightly thrown by the presence of the Vanderbilts because, like, obviously she knows. Yeah, she was not warned at all. And it's not like she doesn't know who they are, but it's very much like the opposite of, like, 
Do you know what I mean? Like the Absolutely. Vanderbilts made their money off of like people like Rose's family. Yes. <laughs> so she's not like <laughs> so, you know, she's not like particularly cold, but she's not like creating a space where she's like, oh, let's all get to know each other. She's a little bit of like, I would say, kind of just like a bit of a spectral, like walk you know, like she's walking with the group, but like slightly behind. Hmm. And so she's like taking note of these artists, but as Eric said, like she probably doesn't know who they are very much. So she's more like taking in the scene rather than interacting in that moment. Sure. Yeah. I think Frances is doing the juggling act of like, she's got her bicycle and also she's got a big old picnic hamper. Um, and so she's, she's like trying to <laughs> not fall over and, and keep these things intact. But yeah, I think she'll, she'll happily kind of say, ah, what a pleasure to meet you both. Yes. Uh, are any of you painters? Are you, are you here to show off your skills and Monet just kind of like kind of chuckles um, knowing that that's like a ridiculous thing for him to say um, or to, for him for him to ask but doing it anyway uh, um, I'm hesitating because Genevieve is likely to want to show off in general but does know that she is not the caliber of painter that Monet is Normally, she would never admit such a thing. So this is this is a a very interesting person to find. Sure, <laughs> she's, she's hesitating whether she should do her her usual <laughs> showing off in front of someone who she knows is actually better than her, mm-hmm. which is mm-hmm. not common. I think Frances will see you hesitate, and she'll just kind of say, "Oh, well, I mean, I'm here to hone more than show off." So I, I know. All the others around me are extremely talented, yourselves obviously included. Well, I, I, I too am here to hone. Uh, as this is Sicily speaking, I too am here to hone. I, as you may know, have not found the success in the Parisian art scene of, of my friend here, Claude. So I uh, thought I could brush up a bit and watch him work and see if I could grab a few pointers from him. Uh, you're more than welcome to join us. Oh, what a gracious offer. Um, Francis will look to you all and see if if you would like to join the famous people. (laughs) Genevieve is not going to pass up this opportunity to make (laughs) herself more of a part of high society. So fabulous. She will say, that is lovely. That would be that would be wonderful. Is there anything in particular that like we can see that they're working on that I could like point to poor Rose, who is. (laughs) hanging back a little so can you can you all picture i like whatever you have in your head if even if you aren't sure what a sunday afternoon on la grande jatt is like the picture you have in your head is probably the one that we're that you're thinking of um with like i could sing the entire score of the sondheim musical right now (laughs) yeah yeah with the parasols (laughs) on the on yeah like on the the bank of of some water um Mm -hmm. and so they're they're painting a scene like that, right? Like there are people out, um, you know, Wonderful. just kind of enjoying the day, and they're they're doing that. And so I would say, Francis, if you want to like set up your sketchboard, yeah, and easel, bring out the picnic right next to them. Um, they would be happy to have you do that. Yeah, let's do it. I don't know if Genevieve wants to do that also, um, but uh, but they would be happy to have you have you do that. I think she will. No okay. one can turn down a picnic spread from Alphonse. He's just the best. <laughs> certainly, <laughs> certainly. Um, so you all, you kind of set up the picnic, you set up your sketchboards, and 
you know, you're you're kind of you're you're chatting with them. You know, you're kind of chatting with each other. You're you're taking in the the sunny afternoon. And Francis, you're kind of sneaking looks over at Monet and and Cicely. Um, of course you are, right? Like you're 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 Obviously. you're just kind of like <laughs> you, you can't you can't help but notice, like you can't help but try to watch these two like famous painters work. Um, Peep that technique. Exactly, exactly. And though they're trying to focus on their work, they're giving off kind of an air of distracted agitation. They're kind of they look a little pale, like a little a little paler than they should look in the sun. They've got kind of sweat rising on the backs of their necks, but like not in a not in like a it's hot outside kind of way, but like that they like had a fright. And I think it reminds you of the feeling you had the moment that you looked at your first portrait that had a mask on it. Hmm. It was like something that was so strange and shocking, but not like not like immediate danger, but just so unsettling that like it kind of overtook your senses and you were like jittery. That's an alarming thing to describe. <laughs> <laughs> and so but they're carrying on a conversation. They're they're yeah, talking. Yeah. yeah. Can I can I see their sketchbooks? Like Sure, yes, they're just painting the, the, the scene that you see in front of you as well. Huh. Can I look around subtly and see if I see any weird people in masks? Sure you can, yes. Um, <laughs> you don't see anyone in, in a mask. Huh. And I think as you're, as you're looking... Well, I was going to say, I think as the rest of you are looking around Percy, I think you, you're the youngest of the group. Um, you're also the youngest in your family. And as you and I talked about you the way that you kind of experienced the kind of lack of attention from your parents was that you did a lot of sitting and observing you you've been a people watcher since you were very young Mm -hmm. and you too are watching these two and it's very clear to you that they something has scared them and but they're trying to like chat and paint through it to kind of convince themselves that it that whatever it was isn't real, it didn't happen. Interesting. Is, is there like a discreet way to ask Claude Monet what has frightened him recently? <laughs> yeah, I mean you can. You, 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 you can. I mean you're, you're you're Vanderbilt after all. Just ask the man. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's a great great point. Uh, yeah, I guess Percy. You know, he's already blathered at them for a long time so i guess he just turns <laughs> to them and says you know hello gentlemen uh, what something seems to be troubling you what is it Senorion, uh monet says it, it's nothing and cicely says yes al- almost certainly nothing uh, it, it's nothing to concern you mm, i think percy would push here because again he's not not like the most uh subtle in these kinds of dealings so i think he says you know i i notice you say almost nothing so what was it (laughs) and cicely he he like kind of closes his eyes as if he's trying to decide not even like whether he should share it or not but whether whether there's anything to share and all of a sudden you hear a shriek echoing across the park it sounds like someone who is not afraid but like appalled at what they're seeing 
Hi everyone, Eric Priester here from the Nature of My Game podcast. We are so excited to be some of the first people to play Casilda Song, and to be able to share that journey with all of you. The first episode of our playthrough, which you just heard a snippet from, releases Wednesday, September 20th, and you can check us out wherever you listen to podcasts. You'll also find eight previous seasons where we play games like the Yellow King RPG, Delta Green, Knights Black Agents, Call of Cthulhu, and Monster of the Week. You can also find more information about the Nature of My Game podcast at NOMG Podcast on Twitter and Instagram, or at www.nomgpodcast.com. Thanks for listening!